Hello, I'm Basha and you're listening to the Sloan Newscast. So if you guys listen every week, you'll know by now that what we do is a bit different. We don't do breaking news, we go slow. We look beyond the headlines and we tell one investigative story each week. And so this week's episode is very much in that spirit. A really good example, I think, of how going back and re-examining something that just swam through the headlines can actually get you to the story. And that is the meeting of the G7 in Cornwall and the promise to vaccinate the world. I'm handing over to my colleague, James Harding, who's going to tell you the story of a failure, of how the richest nations on the planet came up catastrophically short. In James's words, it's not a who done it, but a who didn't done it. Over to James. This is the story of seven days in June, of the seven leaders of the world's wealthiest nations. And it's the story of seven billion people. The historic promise to take care of each of us by protecting all of us. On June the 3rd, seven days before the G7 leaders began to gather in Cornwall. Our headlines this morning, a shot in the arm for the Prime Minister as he urges other people to take up the vaccine. Boris Johnson, the UK's Prime Minister, had his second shot of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. The UK's vaccine programme had by then jabbed nearly 80% of its adult population, nearly 60% of them double jabbed. In the world's 100 or so poorest countries, that number was lower than 1%. And so, on Sunday the 6th of June, just a few days before the start of the G7 summit in Cornwall, Boris Johnson pledged to vaccinate everyone against COVID-19. What we want the G7 to try to agree is that uh, instead of vaccinating the whole world by 2024 or 2025, which is the current, you know, what we'd achieve on the current timetable, uh, we need to get this done by the end of of next year, by, by 2022. He told journalists, vaccinating the world by the end of the year would be the single greatest feat in medical history. He said he was calling on his fellow G7 leaders to join us to end this terrible pandemic. The World Health Organization estimates that 11 billion doses are needed. That's two doses each for 70% of the world's adult population. And so Boris Johnson was making no small ask. But then the UK had helped to establish COVAX, the multi-agency effort to vaccinate the world, as close as it comes to the Avengers assemble in the fight against the coronavirus. And the UK was one of its biggest donors. In fact, More than nine out of ten of its jabs so far have been the UK's Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. And the British government has form. It's got form in bringing the world together when it matters. So if you wanted a country that was sort of middle-ranking in terms of financial heft, but influential in the right ways, you'd want to pick the United Kingdom to host this moment. We have the right networks, good scientists. We also had a very good vaccine rollout, you know, so in good position to to be a great host and a great leader at this moment. Even the weather, not the UK's most reliable partner on these occasions, played its part. The sun shone over Carbis Bay, the turquoise sea sparkled. And after the years of Trump discord and the long pandemic year of virtual diplomacy, it seemed that a real internationalism was back. Global leadership, to meet a global crisis. There was the England football team 
and not able to watch this press conference live in the way... Boris Johnson only wished that the England football team, preoccupied as they were by the Euros, could tune into his press conference to witness what he called the triumphs of the G7. But seven days after Boris Johnson had made his call to bring the G7 together to vaccinate the world, what he actually announced was this. A week ago, I asked my fellow leaders to help in uh, preparing and providing the doses we need to vaccinate the whole world by the end of 2022. I'm very pleased to announce that this weekend, leaders have pledged over one billion doses, either directly or through funding to COVAX. That includes 100 million from the UK to the world's poorest countries, which is another, another big step towards vaccinating the world. It was a fraction of what the world needed. One billion doses out of 11 billion. In the days that followed, it became clear that even the one billion didn't quite add up. But worse, the summit had failed it had failed to come up with the funding for the global vaccine testing and treatment program that was needed. It had failed to address the urgency of the global vaccine crisis now, failing to meet the growing shortfall in vaccine supply for this summer. And it had delayed the delivery of even that one billion pledged vaccines into next summer, in turn, pushing back the vaccine rollout for frontline workers worldwide beyond the end of this year. I'm James Harding. And this is the story then of the vaccine failure at Carbis Bay, the G7's deadly sin. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Most journalism is an attempt to find out what just happened and why. This is a story about what didn't. It's a who didn't done it. Imagine if the Beatles had got together at Abbey Road, but somehow didn't record the album or Pelé had missed that bicycle kick against Belgium in 1968. A great thing that nearly happened, 
but then didn't. Because if the seven leaders of the world's richest countries had surely one job, even among all their other pressing business, well, when they met at Carbis Bay in June 2021, it was to tackle the pandemic. COVID has killed millions of people, locked down hundreds of millions more, and paralyzed the world economy. As they gathered, a third wave was beginning to wash over Africa. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, this is Gabriele Fontana. I'm the regional health advisor for UNICEF for uh, Eastern and Southern Africa. Gabriela is seeing the impact of these rising cases on countries like Zambia, Zimbabwe and Malawi. Sometimes I think we miss the bigger picture. If you don't have vaccines, you cannot reopen. European countries know that well. They start reopening now when they go to a certain level of vaccination or immunity in the population. We can't reopen in Africa in many countries because we don't have the vaccines. If you don't reopen, what happens here? In Africa, you close the schools. And now you have children that are in households that are impoverished by the pandemic, that are more exposed to violence. We have seen adolescent pregnancy skyrocketing. We have seen malnutrition going up among children because many of them get the main meal at school at lunch and schools are closed. Some of the children will never come back to school. We know that. We have seen it when we had the Ebola outbreak in, uh, in 2014-15 in, uh, in West Africa. Many of those children, after schools were closed for a few months, they never got back to school. So th this is what we have in front of us. Vaccines are not just for immunizing. Vaccines are for living here. Meanwhile, the Delta variant is also starting to lap back against the shores of developed, vaccinated countries such as the UK itself. And so why, given that they'd made the promise to fund and deliver vaccines for the world by the end of next year, why didn't it happen? To what is an unlikely coalition of people, people in well-worn Birkenstock sandals and those in buffed churches brogues, charity activists and Tory backbenchers, Boris Johnson's G7 started with another seven, 0.7. Sticking rigidly to spending 0.7% of our national income on overseas aid is difficult to justify to the British people, especially when we're seeing the highest peacetime levels of borrowing on record. In November of the previous year, he and his Chancellor Rishi Sunak had announced that the UK was cutting its promise to spend 0.7% of the budget on international aid. So I think this story really starts in November 2020. So as soon as the UK government decided to cut its aid budget, the die was cast really for their G7. Kirsty McNeil is the Executive Director for Policy Advocacy and Campaigns at Save the Children. The reason I say that is the G7 as a forum is a place where the chair has a huge influence. So it's not like the WTO or the COP or somewhere else where other parties are kind of equally powerful. A G7, the host really does set the tone and the level of ambition and the tempo. And as soon as the UK government as host said we're going to step back from our aid commitments. And in fact, it was the only G7 country to do so in the middle of a pandemic. Every other country has maintained or increased their aid budget. When the UK government decided to cut back its aid commitment, it made it very hard to almost impossible for them to rally others behind any of their priorities, because other G7 countries quite rightly said, why would we step up to pay for that when you're scaling back? But in the early months of 2021, Boris Johnson's team in Downing Street had good reason to hope that the G7 was going to show that global leadership, and in fact global Britain, 
were working. The Prime Minister's two key lieutenants in this were John Bew, the historian, now serving as a foreign policy advisor in Number 10, and Jonathan Black, the civil servant in the Cabinet Office, who'd been appointed the UK's Sherpa to the G7 summit, i.e. the man holding the pen on that final communique, the statement that's worked up over a matter of months and ultimately agreed by all seven world leaders. To Bew and to Black, one of the main ambitions of the Carbis Bay summit was to demonstrate that the G7 itself was back in business. After all, the G7 summit had had a sorry run of it. The one that was due to be held in June 2020 at Camp David in the United States had been cancelled. In 2019, in France, the G7 met, but they couldn't even agree a joint statement. The previous year in Canada, there'd been a proper dust-up. President Donald Trump left early after a public dispute with the host, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Bew, Black and their boss, Boris Johnson, wanted to show that this time it would be different. That this time, in Cornwall, the world's leaders could come together and lead. And the omens were good. In February, COVAX, that international vaccine alliance, set out its first confident forecast of vaccine distribution worldwide, thanks largely to commitments of the UK's Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine that were going to be produced at the Serum Institute in India. And then in April, President Biden gave another boost to the Carbis Bay Summit. He announced that his first foreign trip would be to join world leaders at the G7 in June. The story for COVAX starts out really positively, and most of the supplies that COVAX was receiving were coming from the Serum Institute of India, which you probably know is the biggest vaccine manufacturer in the world. I'm talking here to Lily Caprani, who works at the UNICEF headquarters in New York. Um, done a deal with AstraZeneca to produce AstraZeneca vaccines, very affordable, at high volumes, and we were starting to ship high volumes of vaccines to countries that otherwise wouldn't have had them, especially in Africa. But we started to get really concerned as we moved into the spring that there was a spike that we started to see in COVID cases in South Asia. And as we all know, turned into a really awful surge of the virus in India that then rapidly affected all of the neighbouring countries. At one point, I think in May, there was an area of Nepal where 40% of the healthcare workers were infected with COVID-19, meaning, you know, not, not only was that awful for them, but the kind of healthcare systems were collapsing. It became such a deadly wave. And as a result, India just wasn't able to export those vaccines anymore. So we very suddenly found ourselves in a situation where not only was the world, you know, trying to massively scale up its capacity to manufacture vaccines at a rate never seen before, but suddenly the country that was able to give us the volumes couldn't anymore. So COVAX were suddenly completely undersupplied and all of these countries that otherwise weren't going to get any vaccines were left with nothing. So UNICEF starts talking to high-income countries, to the G7. They need money to secure the future supply of vaccines to be able to go out and buy them for themselves. More urgently than that, we were facing a complete lack of supply. So we were asking the G7 to recognise that they already had so much supply available to them, more than they'd need for their own populations, that they also needed to give us the doses available to them, not just the money to buy them in future. And what was their response on that? So individual countries made a lot of signals of intention that they would donate doses at some point, but there was a real lack of kind of timeliness around it. I think we started to hear throughout the spring, you know, warm words and commitments being made with no timeline from the UK, from the US, 
President Macron calling on other members of the European Union. The challenge was none of that was time bound and and we were in an emergency situation where we literally had no supplies. And, and as we've seen in those countries that have got very low coverage, vaccination coverage, new variants were emerging. And sure enough, they have ended up challenging the rest of the world. You know, it's not it's never just one country affected by a new variant. And we were warning time and time again, if you leave these countries without vaccines, this is going to be harmful for all of us. It's not just those countries that will suffer. When the G7 foreign ministers met in London in May, there was the first hint that the top-line rhetoric was drifting away from the small print. When the Foreign and Development Ministers' meeting took place in advance of June, we didn't see any firm commitments to sharing doses, and we were really concerned at that point that we weren't going to see any progress. In fact, the pandemic came well down a long laundry list of other international issues. And on vaccinations itself, the foreign ministers largely recognised the work of others and patted the G7 on their collective backs for funding commitments so far. But there was no talk of pledges for the future. By the beginning of June, the row over the 0.7% was not only damaging the UK's international reputation, it was beginning to eat into domestic politics. In fact, on the weekend before the G7 itself, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak found themselves facing a symbolic rebellion in the House of Commons from MPs, including Conservative ones, who were urging the government to recommit on its aid spending. I mean, morally, this is a devastating thing for us to have done. And so while the Prime Minister might have wanted to be arm-twisting fellow world leaders, well, he was on the phone to Tory backbenchers. And instead, what we saw with the UK host was on the Sunday before the summit, the Chancellor ringing round his backbench colleagues, trying to get them not to rebel on UK aid. There was, if you remember, this very overblown claim in the Sunday Times the weekend before the summit that said the UK wants a plan to vaccinate the world. And on the Monday of the week of the summit, the Prime Minister himself ringing round parliamentary colleagues trying to get them not to rebel on UK aid. And that really was a mess of their own making, that exactly when they should have been intensively ringing round other capitals, they were intensively ringing round constituencies, trying to keep their own parliamentary majority. There was a growing fear too, just a week out from the G7 summit, that the seven leaders at Carbis Bay were going to miss the boat, that they somehow just didn't get it, that given the agenda around climate change, gender, pandemic preparedness, and building the economy back better, well, the urgent business of vaccinating the world would be forgotten. Richard Curtis, the Make Poverty History campaigner, put a video out that went viral. And it had a simple hashtag, why not share? And so it seemed more than promising it felt on that Sunday, the 6th of June, well, it felt almost redeeming when Boris Johnson chose that moment to make his promise to vaccinate the world. What we want the G7 to try to agree is that uh, in, instead of vaccinating the whole world by 2024 or 2025, which is the current, you know, what we'd achieve on the current timetable, uh, we need to get this done by the end of, of next year, by, by 2022. Vaccine campaigners like Kirsty McNeil immediately, i.e. on that Monday morning, tried to find out what the Prime Minister's pledge actually meant. And when we dug into that, it became very clear that that was not going to be a deal about patent sharing. That wasn't going to be a deal about burden sharing on the financing. That was looking ever more like just a deal on dose sharing, which is important. But let's remember, 
dose sharing is a correction for a previous policy failure. The only reason you're in a position to share your excess doses is because you've accumulated an excess in the first place. So if the system was working equitably and everyone had access to the vaccines that they needed, dose sharing wouldn't really be a tool in our toolkit. So the credibility of dose sharing as the answer rather than burden sharing of the financing was really hanging by a thread even going into the summit. Meanwhile, as so often happens in politics, the big row turns out to be not quite that. The argument over the 0.7% was diffused by technicality. The vote was denied on a Monday, bumped into a debate on a Tuesday, and there may have been some hot talk in the Commons, but there was no government defeat. Meanwhile, by Wednesday, the United States was doing what it generally does, taking the lead. The United States will purchase a half a billion doses of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine to donate to nearly 100 nations that are in dire need in the fight against this pandemic. I'm Eloise Todd and I work for the Pandemic Action Network. Well, I think on the Wednesday night before the G7 weekend, I got very excited when Biden made his announcement on the 500 million Pfizer at cost because it felt like, oh, wow, this is maybe like the start of a tsunami of pledges and he's kind of going out big and they're all going to go in the slipstream. And there was reason to think that momentum really was building. The week before, Kristalina Georgieva, a development economist and now in charge of the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, not, I should say, the organisation that you'd think would naturally lead a global effort to roll up the world's sleeves and get jabbing. Well, Kristalina Georgieva and the IMF had orchestrated a call with the head of the World Trade Organization, the head of the World Health Organization, and the head of the World Bank to accelerate the vaccine program. What the IMF plan said was this. It wanted 40% vaccination by the end of 2021. It wanted 60% of the world vaccinated by the summer of 2022. And its argument, as you'd expect, was numerical. The cost of the vaccine program would be about, say, $50 billion, of which 35 billion should be paid by donor countries. But the benefit to the world, to the world economy, would be $9 trillion. And so on Thursday, as the Sherpas, the media, and the whole G7 caravan headed to Cornwall, it seemed there were more calls, more momentum for funding the global vaccine and treatments program, the program that's known as the ACT Accelerator. And it wasn't just coming from activists outside the room, it was coming from heads of government inside it. Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister, and Erna Solberg, the Norwegian PM, who's been the driving force behind the ACT Accelerator. Together they wrote an open letter in the Financial Times calling for the G7 to pick up its fair share of the vaccine tab. And then on Friday night, Joe Biden put out what could be described as a bit of a G1 communique, a kind of list from the US of uh, all the things that the US were doing. And again, that, that gave me pause for thought. I was like, hang on a minute. <laughs> Is there going to be some, again, some competitive race to the top where every country says, look what I'm doing? Or is this basically it? And unfortunately, it was like there wasn't really a team performance. They kind of lost the match. Biden was a bit of the star player, but the team didn't really get anywhere. As the leaders gathered and their Sherpas traded terms on the communique, back in the real world, this felt like much more than a high-stakes game of Cluedo. Here's Kirsty McNeil again. And then on the Friday, the summit begins. From a Save the Children point of view, the summit begins with 
devastating news, which is our colleagues in Afghanistan tell us that the entire country has run out of doses. The entire country of Afghanistan has run out of doses. So when we say the sense of urgency was lacking in Carbis Bay, that's what we mean that UK negotiators seem to be treating this like just another summit, just another policy process, not something taking place while pandemic was raging all around us, as it still is. By now, the world's leaders have gathered in Cornwall, and we're getting the usual kind of summitary stories, the ones about Justin Trudeau's flip-flops or about the Biden's trip out for tea. There was one about Cornish pasties that had been created specially for the occasion of the G7 summit, Cornish pasties that you have to say look suspiciously like the kind of Cornish pasties you'd see on any other occasion. But the bulk of the detail on any deals coming out of the summit, well, those had already been agreed. There's a lot of external pressure Kristalina Georgieva, Ernest Solberg, Angela Merkel herself pressing for a financing deal on global vaccines. So why didn't it just happen? So it's been, it's been estimated that the cost of vaccinating the world, which is of course what the Prime Minister told the Sunday Times he wanted to do, that the cost of vaccinating the world is anywhere between 50 billion and 66 billion dollars. And we'd calculated that the G7's fair share of that is two thirds. But new money was not on the table in Carbis Bay. And our understanding is that's because the host didn't ask for it to be. But the host had decided that it was the dose-sharing announcement that would be the most eye-catching and that's what should be focused on. Even the dose-sharing agreement, however, is not at the right level of ambition. So what was agreed was that a billion doses would be shared by the end of next summer when actually what's needed to get ahead of the epidemic is a billion doses to be shared by the end of this summer. So we would argue that the UK focused on the wrong issue to the wrong timetable, when actually the big play that was here to be made was financial burden sharing, and that wasn't secured as an outcome because it wasn't sought as an outcome. And here, it's worth taking a step out of time. Because the thing is, when you are in the driving seat, when you're running a G7 summit, you really can make a difference. Summits, believe it or not, these moments of international diplomacy can actually change the world. The G8 summit in Glen Eagles in 2005, set against a backdrop of Make Poverty History and Live Aid campaigning, it did just that. So, Justin, can I start by asking, who are you and what do you do? I'm Justin Forsyth. I work for an amazing uh, campaign called Countersin, which is a movement of people and organisations to get a billion people to take action in their own lives on climate change. Back in 2005, Justin Forsyth was working with Tony Blair. He was an advisor on Africa and international development, and he was tasked with making the G8 a success. I wanted to know how that happened. What Tony Blair said from the very beginning is he wanted a big, ambitious outcome. And he instructed his negotiator that they're Sherpas, as, as we know them, and we, who is Sir Michael Jay in those days, he's now Lord Jay, to negotiate a very ambitious outcome at Glen Eagles and not to blink first. And I think that's the most important ingredient. Listening to him, it struck me that there is one big difference between now and then. And it's us, we the people. In 2005, there was a global public campaign behind debt reduction and aid. It was called Make Poverty History. Today, in 2021, there's no such campaign for vaccines. 
So I wanted to know from Justin whether all that effort, the global concerts and the marches on the streets, whether they'd made any difference at all to what actually happened at Glen Eagles. It affected enormously. Make Poverty History and Live Aid were the backdrop um, to these negotiations. You know, I remember at the, the penultimate meeting of the Sherpas, which was just down the road in Whitehall from Live Aid, which was happening in Hyde Park, of hearing as the Sherpas were literally meeting and doing the negotiations, the music in the background of the bands warming up. Tonight is a denial of the pornography of poverty that is played out nightly in our living rooms. We then went up to Scotland in Glen Eagles and, and Michael J hadn't done a deal on several parts of the communique on Africa, on the big bits, on aid, on debt, on access to AIDS treatment. Even as President Bush was landing in Air Force One, we were on the phone to his chief negotiator in the plane as they were flying in, negotiating one of the key clauses of the communique. And he then agreed it, President Bush on the plane. And we went round that night as all the leaders' teams were meeting in Glen Eagles in the hotel, and told them all that they were the only delegation. One by one, we went around and told them that the only delegation that now held out on this key clause on universal access to AIDS treatment was a massive thing. It meant that the very poorest people in the world had AIDS drugs, when actually, in effect, only the US had agreed it. So there was all this brinkmanship, all this negotiation, and the Make Poverty History campaign was really creating the noise that allowed Tony Blair um, to hold out and to push right to the wire of getting the maximum possible. And tell me what about the dynamics between the leaders. So how much did Tony Blair have to, and I know these things get fabled in the telling of it, but how much is true, Justin, in Tony Blair's role in eyeballing or arm twisting the leaders themselves? One leader Chancellor Schroeder from Germany was very reluctant to support Tony Blair on anything he was proposing. And, you know, at one point, not to get too carried away, but he and Schroeder were in the toilets at, at Glen Eagles with, I think Tony Blair didn't quite have an up against the wall, but almost pressing him to, to, to sign on the dotted line, which he finally did. 2005 then was a story about the power of leadership, about planning, and of course, about public support public pressure. Not from activists, but from Middle Britain, from Middle America. And there's something here worth reflecting on because for all the guilt and the second guessing around well-meaning, white, wealthy saviour complexes, this is a story about the West and the rest. It is about the responsibility of rich countries to poor countries. Not because there's a moral human thread that connects us all, but because this time, generosity is self-interest. No one is safe until everyone is. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. 
We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry, to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts. If you wanted to design a strategy to give the virus maximum opportunity to evolve in ways that evade the vaccines, then allowing it to run where there are very low levels of vaccination and a lot of first dose vaccination, but without the second dose. It's sort of like sending the virus to the gym. It is absolutely sending the virus to the gym. And we're sending lots of the virus to the gym because we're not suppressing it effectively with other means. So, you know, that's the really alarming thing about what we're doing right now. I'm talking to Peter Sands. I am the executive director of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria based in Geneva. In the conversations I've had with him, he's pointed me to the pace at which the Delta variant has been spreading across Africa. Infections and deaths up 40% in a week exponential growth each week for the past five weeks. So I wanted to get a sense from Peter of the bigger picture, not just to this pandemic, but previous ones, because of course COVID isn't the first. When pandemics are threatening the lives of people in the wealthy countries, the world mobilizes pretty effectively, as we have seen with COVID. But that once, to put it bluntly, people stop dying in wealthy countries, that the level of political visibility, focus and resources tails off pretty sharply. And so we have a, t- a long tail of unfinished pandemics. HIV AIDS, tuberculosis was a pandemic, still kills something like 1.5 million people a year. And of course, perhaps the oldest, malaria a pandemic that was all over the world hundreds of years ago, but is still killing hundreds of thousands of children. Peter used to run one of the biggest banks in the world, Standard Chartered. So perhaps it's no surprise that he points out that in the scheme of things, global vaccines, testing and treatments are very affordable. Look, the rich countries in the world, the OECD countries have mobilized over $12 trillion dollars in their responses to COVID-19. What we're talking about in terms of accelerating global rollout of vaccines, PPE, diagnostics, treatments, and so on, is of the order of 30 to $50 billion. It's a tiny fraction of, in a sense, it's a tiny fraction to solve the problem of what we've spent dealing with the consequences of the problem. But as I keep being told, this is a classic problem of collective action. Everyone knows it's a good thing to do. Everybody wants someone else to do it. Back at the summit, back at Carbis Bay in Cornwall, it's now Saturday. Yeah, and we saw the draft communique quite late. I think it was on the Saturday. 
that we saw the version that we thought would be probably the final agreement, but it was still being debated. Those numbers were still being debated as well. I think, you know, honestly, I'm sure that it was very hard for them to reach agreement. And there was clearly an ambition to at least reach this billion figure, which you probably know the billion doses that they're committed to donating when you break it down is a kind of combination of true donations and not really donations and top-ups of contracts and, and previously committed doses. When, though, is a billion not a billion? It was clear that the billion vaccines was the, the big idea. And the problem with the billion vaccines was that it's the right number at the wrong time. So this summer, a billion vaccines is the right number by, say, the end of August, early September. But by next summer, it's exactly the wrong number. It's just missing the moment quite remarkably. This is Jamie Drummond. I've known him for years, and he's always been working on campaigns, either with Bono or the Gates Foundation, with One and with Data. And he now coordinates a group of the most influential NGOs around the world, campaigners looking to try and coordinate their efforts around the health agenda, around climate change and social justice. The point he's making here cuts to the chase. The vaccine failure at Carbis Bay wasn't just about the scale of the pledges. It was about the urgency. COVAX may have started in February with a confident assessment of the vaccines it would deliver in 2021. But since then, things have got worse and worse and worse. And by some estimates, it's 290 million doses short now of what it needs for this summer. Its target for the end of the year has now slipped into the spring of 2022. We need to understand that means that what didn't happen at the G7 needs to happen now. And that means we need that billion vaccines now before August, September. Certainly multiple hundreds of millions so that the under-vaccinated regions of the world get vaccinated to help fight the third wave. I asked my colleague at Tortoise, Lara Spirit, to look into the numbers themselves. How much of what was promised at Carbis Bay was double counting? And what about that billion doses? What about that pledge itself? Is it real? So, no. And this was by no means clear in the reporting. Past commitments were actually folded in to reach the one billion figure, which went all the way back to February, even to get to the 870 million doses, which is actually the more accurate figure. You have to include commitments made in the weeks leading up to the summit. Genuinely new doses have amounted to just 613 million. There's also this question of dollars versus doses. It's not quite so simple as saying one equals the other. Canada, for instance, says it's giving up to 100 million doses, but it's only pledged 13 million directly, and the rest rolls in cash contributions it's made previously to COVAX. It's complicated because, of course, vaccine prices vary enormously. Of course, this is an infectious virus. It's a mutating pathogen that moves as fast as we do. Boris Johnson said that vaccinating the world would be the greatest feat in medical history. But is it even doable? Is it reasonable to ask the G7 to secure enough vaccines for the world by the end of 2022? Can we make them? Can we store them? Can we distribute enough of them? My name is Zoltan Kish. I am a research associate working at Imperial College London in the future vaccine manufacturing hub. And we have been looking into how to mass produce uh, mRNA vaccines for a pandemic response for over three years now, even before the pandemic. What I learned was that manufacturing an mRNA vaccine is, well, at least to Zoltan, a relatively simple process. But, well, it seems there are a lot of buts. 
Crucially, some of the components needed are highly specialized and there aren't currently enough factories to make these components. There aren't enough factories to make the vaccines either. Those are the main challenges. But they aren't the only obstacles that need to be overcome before we can ensure a global supply by 2022. Helpfully, Zoltan had made a list. Let me see, because I, I wrote the list. Um, there's also what I call consumables and single-use equipment. The process has been established based on single-use equipment, right? Most of the process. Meaning that, you know, you use one component once and then you throw it away, basically, right? It's single-use. These are things like filter membranes that are used for purification of the vaccine, uh, chromatography resins, even like bioreactor bags and different storage units are single-use, right? Now, all these components are used not only for making mRNA vaccines, but for making other vaccines as well. So you have to make sure that there's enough of these components. What else is on there? I'm worried about your list, Zoltan. What else is on there? Making sure that there's the right distribution networks around the world. Then you have to make sure that there's enough people who vaccinate, right? Vaccinators, people who administer the vaccines. So there's a limited number of vaccinators in developing countries as well. And there's the issue of vaccine hesitancy and people not trusting the vaccine, right? So there's... For, for overcoming vaccine hesitancy, you, sh you should make sure that you produce the products at high quality, consistently at high quality, so that you don't have any incidents with side effects and so on, right? And you should also combat misinformation there to, to overcome vaccine hesitancy. So a quick recap of Zoltan's list, and it gives you just a sense of the challenge. Raw materials, specialized components, single-use consumables, facilities, expert people, expert know-how, cold storage, delivery of vaccine to the actual arms of people, and tackling hesitancy. And to be clear about some of the reporting that's been left on the cutting room floor here in making this podcast, there are plenty of people who say that we focus too much on vaccines, that they're only a small part of the answer. There's testing, there's treatments, there's therapeutics, there's effective healthcare systems, social distancing rules that are communicated and observed. Vaccines is, to be sure, just a part of it. It is, though, a big part, the biggest. And both practically and totemically, the most significant statement the G7 could have made in ending the pandemic, protecting the world and bringing its own citizens back to safety and something like normal, concerned vaccines. But at the end of the summit on Sunday the 13th of June, with the Cornish seaside behind him, Boris Johnson came out to make his announcement on vaccines. It was the one billion dose pledge. A week ago, I asked my fellow leaders to help in uh, preparing and providing the doses we need to vaccinate the whole world by the end of 2022. I'm very pleased to announce that this weekend, leaders have pledged over one billion doses, either directly or through funding to COVAX. That includes 100 million from the UK to the world's poorest countries, which is another, another big step towards vaccinating the world. And that's in addition to everything scientists and governments and the pharmaceutical industry have done so far to roll out one of the largest vaccination programmes in history. Journalists, as we often do, had plenty of questions, and not all of them, in fact few of them, were about vaccines. There were plenty about climate, about Northern Ireland and Brexit, and as ever with the paradoxically parochial news agenda in this global pandemic, the latest details not on the state of the world, but the timeline of the UK's own lockdown. To be fair, the media wasn't taken in by the grand claims of triumph on vaccines. Robert Peston of ITV put to Boris Johnson, 
Gordon Brown has uh, described the billion doses of vaccine as a moral failure. He simply says it's just not enough. When the former British Prime Minister joined us a couple of days later at a tortoise thinking, here's how he described it. I do fear it's because Britain was cutting overseas aid that they were worried about making further commitments and that you need a leader at a summit like this. Someone's got to, you know, on each issue, someone's got to lead, otherwise things don't happen. The informality of the G7 can actually be an excuse for inaction because you're all sitting around the table speculating at the world. You can give sort of free thoughts about everything and people will listen. But unless you have someone pushing for a decision, you don't actually get the decisions you need. So what had happened? In the eyes of the UK's Foreign Office, the G7 summit was a success. I've spoken to a fair few people in government in reporting this out, but when it comes to speaking on the record, what we've got is a statement. It's from a Foreign Office spokesman, and the person says, quote, The UK has led the global effort to protect humanity against this deadly disease. We helped establish COVAX last year, pledging £548 million to the scheme, which has so far provided 81 million doses to 129 of the world's poorest countries. We've also used our G7 presidency to get the world's biggest nations to pledge 1 billion COVID vaccines globally. And behind closed doors, the fact is the UK really is pleased with what it achieved in Cornwall. After the G7 fiascos of the last few years, there was meaningful multilateral agreement. Officials and ministers say the billion doses was a big step forward. Not far enough, they admit, but it was real progress. And they point out it's not the G7's job to vaccinate the whole world. They need to vaccinate their own countries, the G7 countries, and the poorest ones. They don't need to vaccinate middle-income countries. And when you look at the numbers, the billion doses pledged could vaccinate most of the people in those 92 low-income countries now looking to COVAX to supply vaccines. But a world still waiting for vaccines will surely be left scratching its head at a G7 summit that overpromised and underdelivered. So why? Well, there wasn't a financial commitment to the vaccines in 2022 because, frankly, it's still a lot of money. The UK found that, in the absence of fancy debt facilities to fund the vaccines, there was not much appetite from any of the G7 countries to write those checks now. On vaccine sharing, well, they admit it may not be enough and it certainly may not be soon enough, but the UK's sense is that they got the G7 countries to go as far as they could. Politicians are protective of their own people. Over the coming summer months in the UK, for example, vaccine supply is tighter than you'd think. This is democracy at work. You ask a democratically elected leader to choose between vaccinating a young person in their own country or a healthcare worker in Africa, and well, it's really no question at all. In part, the explanation is of a different category. Boris Johnson had an idea of a renewed internationalism, but it was not the same as the one the vaccine campaigners hoped it would be. They wanted a forum for global solutions. But to the Prime Minister, a successful G7 was as much about world leaders getting together and working through some of their own issues, their bilateral issues, one-on-one. -on -one. And of course, we'd be naive to think there aren't personal political currents to all this too. Presidents Merkel and Macron did not seem eager to go out of their way to hand Prime Minister Johnson a victory on the world stage. Behind the scenes, the relationship between the White House and Number 10 started the year very, very frosty, and it's only just beginning to thaw now. Some officials admit there was an excessive emphasis on preparing for the next pandemic, when COVID-19 is clearly far from done with us now. In fact, as one of the UK's leading medical scientists put it to me, this pandemic, as far as the world is concerned, is nearer the beginning than the end. And psychologically, 
The curious thing about COVID is that it's been a catastrophe, but not in the classic sense, a crisis. It's been a year of chronic health problems, but there's not been a moment, as in the financial crisis of 2008, when it's seen that the global system is on the point of collapse. There's not been, as one official described it to me, a moment of the world teetering on the brink. In the few weeks since the G7 meeting in Cornwall, it already seems clear that the world leader's response to the pandemic was inadequate. The Delta variant of the coronavirus is driving waves of new infections in countries around the world. Authorities are racing to contain a potential widespread outbreak of the virus. The Delta variant has spread to all corners of the United States. Africa is facing what's been called a brutal resurgence of the coronavirus pandemic. Indonesia stands on the brink of a coronavirus catastrophe. The coronavirus is not stopping. And the G7's part in tackling it needn't end here either. What really mattered the most was the US commitment because they put a time limit around it. This is Lily Caprani of UNICEF once again, and she's pointing to the good news and the possibility. And they said they'd start doses coming in June, which is what we desperately needed. And sure enough, they are doing that. We've just seen the first arrivals this weekend. So where did those vaccines go, the ones that just arrived from the US? Where did those vaccines so we had the first donated Moderna vaccines, and which were donated to COVAX so that we could distribute them. They went to Honduras on Sunday. And this coming week, we're anticipating quite a lot more. So we've got millions moving this week and next week from the US. Still not enough and still a huge gap to fill, but it's, it's the first evidence of those promises actually turning into reality. Whereas most of the other pledged doses, we still don't have any time frame around. And if, if they don't come to the end of the year, they, they just won't be as valuable to us. You know, a dose delivered today arguably could do more good than two delivered in six months time when we probably will have a healthier supply pipeline anyway. And so here's the card that Boris Johnson still has up his sleeve. The UK is the host of the G7 until the end of the year. In 2022, it hands over to Germany. But between now and then, there's still time to do more. If he wanted to, Boris Johnson could convene a G7 vaccine summit before the UN General Assembly in September. There were seven days lost in June, seven leaders who fell short of what seven billion people need. But the UK's G7 presidency is not over yet. If he wants to, Boris Johnson can still show that seven is a lucky number. You've been listening to the Slow Newscast, Vaccine Failure, the G7's Deadly Sin. I'm James Harding. The producer is Katie Gunning. The sound designer is Tom Birchall. And a special thank you to Pete Hobbs, Sir Tim Rice and the Truro Choir for giving us the chance to listen to G7. Mm-hmm.